Okay. <clears throat> Hello and welcome to this week's Market Thinkers discussion. My name's Jamie Nemsis and I'll be joined by Drew Meredith, my business partner, uh, along with so uh, Simon and Toby from Ausbill. Welcome, Drew, Simon, Toby. Thanks, Thanks gents. So every week we bring this series to you, which essentially is trying to get the, the client or the investor closer to their investments. And uh, we interview fund managers and thought leaders and um, anyone else that we think is relevant for the investor to, to, to understand more of. A little bit about Drew and I. Drew and I run a firm in Sydney called oh, so Sydney <laughs> in Melbourne. <laughs> in Melbourne. We wish. Yeah, I don't know how we got to Sydney. Maybe we've been locked up too long. We run a firm in Melbourne called Waddle Partners. Waddle Partners has got a history that dates all the way back to 1973 when a guy called Austin Donnelly founded the firm in Sydney uh, in Brisbane, addicted to Sydney, <laughs> to Brisbane. Um, and he had dealers uh, license number one and essentially he was the first fee-for-service independent firm. So fast forward 50 years, Drew and I still run that. Uh, we call us financial planners or investment advisors um, and we, we essentially look after mainly retiree money um, and retiree clients. So in this session, we're talking small caps um, and Simon Wood and Tobias Bucks, who manage the Ausbill Global Small Cap Fund, um, will be our guests Osbill manages 11, about $11 billion in Australia and is owned by New York Life, um, which is, of course, a US firm that manages about a half a trillion dollars in assets. Uh, smaller companies seem to be the rage at the moment, and we're all talking about domestic small caps. This is a little bit, a little bit different, but uh, throughout this session, we'll talk about basic concepts and how Simon and Ty Toby make investment decisions on behalf of the clients that invest in their fund and talk about the opportunity for investors that, are, that sits in global small caps. This session will be run, I'll hand over to Drew to talk about how and why we've included the Osbill Fund within our core portfolio and the role that it plays. And then we'll go to 10 quick fire questions um, for both Simon and Toby to, to understand a bit more about them. And then we'll go into longer questions about the fund and then about the underlying stocks that they hold. So maybe over to you, Drew. Thanks, uh, Jamie. I've been looking forward to this one. One of the top holdings is one of my favourite companies uh, ever. <laughs> so look forward to discussing that one in a little while. That's uh, made him a lot of money. That's why it's... Uh, yeah, I think I favorite. might have bought it earlier than you. I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> Firebagger or something at the moment. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's kind of very, very different part of the market. So there's a lot of attention being paid to the big tech names. We call them the FANGs. I think you call them the FAM, fam Gs. Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, Microsoft just kind of keeps getting bigger. But uh, as we'll kind of learn later on, global small caps outnumber the large caps by something like 21 times. You can get the specific number for me, something like 43,000 to 2,000. Um, but uh, they're kind of underweight in most portfolios. As Jamie said, Australian small caps are incredibly popular, but global small caps, not so much. Um, how do we think they fit in a portfolio? We still think it's important to have a core exposure to the, the large cap names, but I don't think you can rely on, as with any, any portfolio, you can't rely on one set of companies. You definitely need to seek diversification. Uh, so we, as our clients would know, we hold things like Munro and GQG, which gives us a large cap exposure to the biggest names. Uh, and then we seek diversification by company size, by sector and by region. At the moment, that includes some 
mid caps, small caps, which is Ausbil, and then an allocation to Asia or a kind of a weighting towards Asia. Um, we only recently recommended the Ausbil fund, uh, and this the reason's probably pretty simple, and it's growth. Um, the way we look at Australia at the moment is uh, with interest rates near zero and COVID impacting all different businesses in different ways, we're finding it harder to find revenue or profit growth in Australia um, in, in a lot of businesses and, and hard to see much look through there either. Uh, so we're... Uh, looking, we we found looking for where which sectors are growing faster than the global economy, and more and more they're coming up in global small caps. Something we'll investigate over the next hour. Um, so I'd like to welcome Simon and Toby again, and Jamie's going to press you with these ten questions. Now we normally only have one portfolio manager on the call, so we've got two. So it's up to you guys if you want to answer every second one or you want to have a go at each one. Should we spill tonight? All right. Was that each one? Yes, let's alternate. Alternate. All right. Okay. So, what is the best stock you've ever bought? Let's start with Simon. I think that's tough to be the trade desk. Uh, trade desk. I think that's yeah. Drew's secret as well. So, <laughs> what is the investment you regret making, Toby? Oh, I think it'd be selling winners too early. I never underestimate the ability of quality management teams to compound value creating events together over a, over a long period. Yeah, it's a good one. What is the one red flag uh, for any investment, Simon? Bad management team, bad ESG. If you don't trust the management team, don't invest in the stock. <clears throat> Toby, what is the most important ratio for you? Uh, be free cash flow yield. I mean, we, we, you want to know how much you're paying for a business in terms of its cash generation ability, particularly as a growth investor. Simon? Pineapple on pizza? I grew up in the UK going to Pizza Hut, eating their Hawaiian, so 100% yes, pineapple on the pizza. That's a yes. I think that's the first yes we've had, Drew. <laughs> uh, Toby, beef, fish, chicken, or beyond meat? I'd probably say just vegetables. Like, I could be tempted by chicken. Okay. Uh, Simon, uh, best investment for Armageddon, USD, Bitcoin, government bonds, or gold? In US dollar. US dollar. Uh, Toby, best region to invest in today? Uh, Europe, probably the Nordic countries. Simon, you're retired today and you, have to, you only can hold one stock for the next 10 years with all your capital in it. What stock is it going to be? Again, I'd say the trade desk owns its trade niche. It's going to do very well over the next 10 years, I believe. Great. I might be buying it soon. Uh, and last question, Toby. You have one short on the NASDAQ to make an index 12 months. Um, what is it? So essentially, what stock's going down over the next 12 months on the NASDAQ? I really, I really wouldn't want to short one of those stocks on the NASDAQ. You, you would be really swimming against a massive tide. If, if, I had, if I was forced to put one short on, I'd probably put it on, on Alphabet, on Google, given, given the antitrust issues up ahead and, and the competition from stocks like the Trade Desk. Yep, yep. It's... Um... It's, it's one that value managers have bet against for a long period of time and they're in a world of hurt. So. Well, they're unemployed. Uh, they're unemployed, yeah. <laughs> Over to you, Drew. Thanks, Jamie. Uh, I think probably a good place to start, just a bit of an intro on your careers. You've both got a bit of a, an accent still there. If, uh, this is some childhood uh, memories together um, and how you came to specialise in smaller companies. 
Yeah, so we both started our careers in, in London in the noughties and Toby and I met in 2007 at Bearings. We were heavily involved with the, uh, the Bearings Global Small Cap Fund back then. Um, we both found our, found our path, uh, path to Australia. Toby came in 2010 with his family and I came in 2013 with my family. And um, when I arrived, I sat down with, with Toby and we, we had a beer and Toby made the observation that, that no one was running a product similar to the one we used to run back in London. And we thought, oh, what a great opportunity to set up a, a global small cap fund run out of Australia. So we, we recreated the, uh, the, the philosophy, the process, uh, the tools we had in place. And um, we, uh, we walked around Sydney looking for a partner and we, um, we started talking to Osbil, great, great firm, great culture. That was back in 2017 and we came on board at the end of 2017 and we launched the fund in 2018, May the 31st, 2018. And, we, and we're delighted um, with how everything's, how everything's going. And Toby and I have focused on small caps for, for a long time since our, since our bearings days. It's, it's just, a, it's a great asset class to find um, real uh, emerging global titans, companies that we think are niche leaders within their industry that are expanding their their product set expanding geographically, managing costs well, and and there's just so many of those in the global small cap space. It's just a it's a fascinating area to research. Maybe that's a good starting point to to move on to the session talking about the universe of opportunities, the countries you look at, um, <clears throat> the number of companies, and where a lot of them are. Um, yeah, so it's a it's a big it's a big universe. As you as you mentioned, we there's about four thousand three hundred companies in the global small cap universe. We look at um, those companies in twenty three developed markets, so North America, Europe, and then Asia, so Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, Japan, Australia, and, and New Zealand, um, and. Um, just yeah huge huge opportunity set we we focus on on developed markets we think the corporate governance in developed markets is is much better um but also what you get is a lot of our companies do access um do do sell and, and are expanding into the, uh, the emerging markets where we do see like great growth opportunities as well and how do you do uh, uh, so, so a large cap uh, global manager, I assume would know his names really well, or she would know his name, know the names really well. So top 200 stocks, which ones am I going to overweight and underweight? And when they, when they do research, there's an enormous amount of research that's available in the top 200 stocks. So your job is to kind of go through that 4,300 um, realm, every stock, and then how do you apply that? You must have totally different skills to say a, a big large cap manager that is trying to get into the really in detail of a, you know, Amazon or a Netflix. Yeah. So it's, there is a different sort of skill set. You're looking for really different things, Jamie. Um, of the 4,300, there's a large number that we, we wouldn't want to invest in um, for, for a number of reasons that what they do to, to, for, to, to make a living and the quality of their ESG. We, one, one of the tools that we have and we've built is, is a screen that's based on our philosophy 
And we narrow down that universe set to about 300 companies that we go through in detail and fundamental heavy lifting qualitative research. And when we start going through those 300, a lot you can discard pretty quickly, almost instantly on those as well, without doing too much work um, based on ESG, either their focus on ESG isn't good enough or they're not seeking to improve it or they've got some pretty shady form behind them. And so once you whittle that down, we're down to about just over 200 stocks we look at, read about and get to know really well. So that part's probably the same to, to a lot of managers. They, they, yep. they focus on about 200 stocks that are really in the niche of what's their core philosophy and process. And we do exactly the same, you know, ring up their, their customers, ring up their suppliers, try and get a handle on, on how good they, they, they are and what the market's expecting of them. Yep. And for the people that are listening, so a, a, a screen is essentially a filter. So Toby and Simon will say, we don't want stocks that look like this or look like this. Put the 4,300 through some kind of sophisticated spreadsheet. And at the end, it'll screen out the 4,100 and give the 200 that meet all the criteria. Is that That's, run on a regular basis? Yeah, yeah. That's we, we run that monthly. I think it, one of the other great parts about um, all the data that, that, that we, we use, I mean, we're a bottom-up stock picker. We do qualitative research, pick, stock, pick stocks on a bottom-up basis. But the screen and other tools give us information to make investment decisions so we can start having an informed qualitative discussion between Simon and ourselves. And one of the great things about the, the screen is we know a lot of different um, facts about companies so we can compare immediate industry peers. So when we look at the trade desk when we first found it and we're like, oh, we, we knew, we, we understood it was basically software tool in programmatic digital advertising. We can go and look at other digital advertising plays and see how it does. Or when we're looking at a consumable stock for some sort of life sciences, we can go and see how immediate industry peers are. And also, it can, we can keep track of earnings upgrades. So we can see the earnings upgrades in a particular subsector, say auto components or machinery, et cetera. So it, it's a wealth of information there. It's not, not just a, a filter or finding the, the, the best 300 stocks on quality, on valuations and growth. It's, it's also provides just a body, a wealth of information that we can then use in different ways going forward. So what are the core measures you're looking for? You mentioned free cash flow before. Uh, return on invested capital is pretty is pretty prevalent on your, your updates. Um, can you explain what that kind of means and, and the kind of companies that, that is more likely to be, you know, attractive measuring? So I'd, I'd just briefly describe it and then hand over to Simon because Simon's <laughs> the, the genius who built rebuilt this. And, the numbers man. Yeah, and built it at... at at Barry's, although an excellent stock picker and a chartered accountant, which I failed to achieve, <laughs> the CFA. Um, but we're, we're looking for quality. You mentioned return on invested capital. That's one of our main ones. We want high quality businesses. We want them at attractive valuations. Valuate, valuations haven't mattered over the last three years. It's been growth at any price, but it doesn't happen for long. It happened during the dot-com and then it changed back to being people wanting growth or quality at a reasonable price. So valuations. We just recap on um, a real basic term, but again, the listeners might understand it bottom up versus a top down. Um, a bottom up approach that you take is all about the company, isn't it? Yeah. Right. Rather than top down. So the top down economy, obviously at the moment, top GDP has seen a big hit based on COVID lockdowns and you're seeing some growth next year. But 
uh, when we're seeing manufacturing slightly recover. And that sort of sets the tone for a lot of stocks, particularly large cap stocks. If we look at big businesses in the US like Halliburton or Exxon in oil, they're going to be driven by the oil price or the rail yeah. name or the banks, the banks are driven by the yield curve. When we look at small caps, the majority of their returns, the majority of what happens when you invest in small caps is driven by what the board and the management team are doing specifically themselves, not by so much by the top-down economy. So that's really, really key. We've got a stock in the portfolio, Generac, that's a small cap. And Generac's growing EPS at almost 50% this year in a year when the S&P's earnings are going to be down between 20 and 30%, depending on which strategist you, 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 you follow. Mm. So it, it's particularly key when you have those small caps, what they do on a bottom-up basis themselves organically drives returns. And when, they, when a small cap that we, that we look at, when they make an acquisition or they enter into a new market or they bring out a new product, that can make material change to their earnings over the next two years, sort of 20 to 30% on a single initiative whereas on a large cap <clears throat> even if they make successful initiatives which they do a lot of the time it's still too small to move the needle so you get a lot more unrecognized growth because it's being driven about by, by what the board and the management team are doing with their people and their services like google's autonomous vehicles or waymo and all those sort of things i think maybe it's a good point to segue almost back to basics and go what's what do you define as a small cap what's the market cap and how does that compare to an australian company um, What's the average average market cap? I, I took over on the screen there, Sai. Do you want to follow up on that question? Yeah, sure. So um, with regards to market cap, what, what we think of as small cap is um, 500 million USD to 5 billion USD. So probably more of a mid cap when you, when you look at the Australian market, yep. but um, we, we follow sort of the global. So we'd Global see definition. Link, at, link administration or cube or something like that would almost fall into your fund if you were doing it in, in Australia. So you're not Correct. talking about, you know, companies that have $500,000 in revenue. You're talking about real operating businesses. Absolutely. Yeah. Big, big businesses, um, strong brands, um, 100, 100%. Um, and just just going back and, and sort of talking about the, the screen. So obviously there are huge number of stocks in our, our universe and we we use the screen we use quality factors like profitability factors and, and cash flow factors um, valuation factors valuation is, is is always is always key we're really looking for um, what we call unrecognized growth so find finding great quality businesses with really good growth characteristics but at sensible valuations um, and what our screen does is it, it narrows down that massive universe and that massive market and really identifies the best area for us to do that, that heavy lifting, that really detailed, fundamental, bottom-up research where we go and talk to managements. We examine their corporate roadmaps. We um, examine their ESG, how they're going to drive earnings growth going forward and, and deliver share price appreciation and and the screen is a great is a great tool to um to at the beginning of our process to help us do that there's only one way though isn't it to find those stocks so drew um so so i assume when you get the 200 you start looking at stocks then competitors will raise their head and other sectors and industry would also raise their head that 
does it does it have to pass the screen to get get into the portfolio or is that just really a, a technique to find stocks and then obviously you use your knowledge and skill and ability to smell out a great stock ultimately <clears throat> the, the we, we won't buy a stock if it's not screening well yep because okay. one of the things that we really focused on for the unit trust holders is that they want to know that they've got the best bottom-up ideas with 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 carefully managed risk and if 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 one of the stocks are best bottom-up ideas it's gonna be really high quality and it's gonna be delivering a lot of growth um, and it's going to be at a real reasonable uh, attractive valuation and so it will screen well um, having said that you, you know whilst we're not whilst it's got to be on the screen we're not completely dictated by the screen each month, although there's 300 names, we might get 10 names or five names and a new. So we're looking at new names and we're looking at suppliers and customers when we see different companies, obviously. But just because something, may, we're not completely dictated by the screen. Yeah, it's just an area to generate ideas for us so that very quickly every month, we've got about five to 10 new stock ideas to go and research to find the next CSL, to find the next trade desk. Got it. And how many stocks in your portfolio at current? 63. 63. And do you hold cash in that portfolio or is it 100% invested? Uh, no, we do hold a little bit of cash. Look, we, the, the portfolio has got a cash limit of 10%. We'll always be below that. We're, we're paid to be fully invested in global small caps for our clients. It's up to people like you to decide on asset allocation. The cash is, is usually a function of... Um, once we've taken profits in a stock that's done well and we're waiting to buy a new position, waiting for the right valuation on the new position to, to buy it. Do you have weights, uh, weight restrictions? Uh, what's the biggest, how big can one stock be within your portfolio? So 5% is the limit on, on, okay. a, on a one um, single position size, which um, you know it, it's good for risk management. Um, we've very, very large limits in terms of sectors or regions. I mean, we are, benchmark agnostic, we're active managers, we've got over a 98% active share. And, and we're, if you compare us to the performance benchmark, we have big differences on sectors and regions because we invest on our best ideas in a diversified manner. They're just our best ideas, not looking at what, what, what the performance benchmark's doing. Mm, just um, the definition there is active share is the difference to the index, basically. Uh, so 98% says you're almost completely opposite or or completely you're not if the index falls you're you might fall but it's not because you're holding the same stocks um is russell russell's 2000 your index or is it something else what, what's the index msdi world small cap well it's more yeah i had a bit of a question around long term i know this is only a reasonably new strategy in australia but long-term returns of small caps compared to say the global large cap index uh there's this kind of perception that they're higher risk but can you prove us wrong <laughs> they they are they're slightly more volatile true yep. um but when you adjust that for the returns they delivered you'll find that they've got much better risk adjusted returns and when you look at the performance of global small caps versus both mid caps and large caps over the last 20 years small caps have basically given you double the return of mid and large caps so it's a very attractive asset class to invest in kind of underweight in in a lot of portfolios isn't it i i think 
the large majority of of um, portfolios will be two underweight small caps. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. They, they represent um, about uh, thirteen to fifteen percent of the of the global market, and a lot of people just don't have an allocation to them, and they're missing out on a great uh, um, a great a great asset class by being underweight. Yeah. Which seems silly because the, the risk-adjusted return, the Sharpe ratio, um, for global small caps is, is far superior to global large caps and mid caps, as Simon says, but it's also better than, higher than domestic equities and emerging market equities. So it's, it's global small caps are, at, are on what we call the efficient frontier. It's the most efficient place to have, or one of the most efficient places to have money in equities. There's probably a good comparison there is concentration. So the S&P 500 is pretty well known that there's something like 25% in four stocks. The ASX, there's something like 50% across financials and materials. What does the small cap index look like that your universe, universe is? And what does the fund look like in comparison to that? Yeah, we, we actually did a slide on this one. So we've got a lot of questions. I don't have it at hand. But I mean, I think that the, the biggest differences probably would be in the... Uh, firstly, the diversification. So the, the global small cap index is a lot more broadly spread across all the different business sectors. And the second one is on key areas. Obviously, the Aussie market's dominated by materials, and that being mostly metals and mining, and financials, that being mostly banks. When you look at the global small cap index, it's about just over 2% is in metals and mining. Hmm. Um, and about 7% is in materials, but most of that is chemicals and construction building materials. So there's a big difference there. And IT for us is 15%. I think it's around 2% for Australia, isn't it? Just over. If you uh, can call the Australian companies IT companies <laughs> <laughs> as well. It's, it's I think Link Group gets in there. Um, <laughs> it's Afterpay and some others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Correct. And Afterpay would almost fit in the fund, wouldn't it? 20 billion? Yeah. Well, it, great stock and obviously held throughout hospital portfolios. But um, <clears throat> I, I think it's important to um, look at the number of businesses in IT that you get in, in global small caps, just in terms of semiconductors and software names. We really get some leaders in all areas. Healthcare is quite big and industrials, we're at, I think it's almost 18% of the global small cap index and a very diversified sector in terms of business models. Um, a, lot of, a lot of these companies are suppliers too, or they're not necessarily competing with the Googles and Facebooks, which no. we'll get onto trade desk later. Yeah. They can be part of the supply chain. Yeah, or, um, or in even more niche areas, even niche as it were. Um, so yeah. it, it's, it's an index where you've got a lot, a lot bigger opportunity set in global small caps, but also in areas where you're much more likely to find a niche leader that can grow geographically and into new products. Um, it, uh, sectors like IT and healthcare and industrials are areas where you find where, where you normally are, um, are very healthy areas to find emerging global titans, real niche leaders. You get a lot bigger opportunity set there than, than domestically as well. And much more balanced, obviously, you've got the US, North America at about 60% of the, the asset class, um, Japan at around 11% um, and, and the rest mostly in Europe. So it's a, it, it's a lot more diversified in terms of regional and can you go into, can this fund go into IPOs or? Yes, we can. Uh, we haven't done so far. Um, yeah. yeah, we could if we wanted to. We're chasing Ant or some of the 
yeah. the unit had to be too big, but <laughs> chasing the unicorns that are coming through. Um, yeah, but not, but but not buying IPOs, you miss out on some great moves. Um, but our IPOs um, can be fantastic for, especially domestic micro cap managers, etc., where you can make good returns, um, particularly when you're a small fund. We haven't actually taken an IPO since. Um, the inception of the fund and yeah. one, one of the main reasons why we'd be very hesitant uh, likely is one like we said we, we, we'd like to see it how, how, how its financials compare against its immediate industry peers people who do exactly the same thing access to the same software they can buy off people hire the same people um, if you've got a higher return on investor capital you're a better business so we, we, we'd want to see that sort of information a lot of IPOs the financial data that comes out is quite quite sketchy you normally have to wait sort of six months to a year to see how an IPO is going to turn into be in a business. Obviously, you can miss out on a lot of upside. Um, having said that, we do own a couple of stocks that have IPO'd pretty recently. It's just we followed them for a while and we wanted to see what management was like, particularly, and this is key for us, on how management um, delivers in terms of expectations, both their management of markets expectations and also their ability to deliver on it. What, what we want unrecognized growth and one obvious key offshoot of unrecognized growth is a management that over delivers on what the market expects. Mm. Um, and it, it's difficult to make sure you, you're on the right side of that or you really understand a management team that's just IPO'd. Yep. And what's access like for you guys? Can you pick up the phone and talk to the CEO or do you do it through investor briefings or you know, how do you kind of um, get access to these small global small companies? Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty mixed. Um, you know, some companies we can get on the phone and access the CEO. Um, yep. When we, we invest between, we put the money to work between 500 mil and 5 billion. So obviously companies, at the lower end around a billion you're more likely to be able to speak to the ceo than the companies at the top end obviously some companies have grown a lot since we bought them drew you've made a lot of money out of the trade desk um you know, we we bought it around 80 bucks it's gone up a lot um you know, we, we don't we, we can't go and get jeff green on the phone but we can hear him talk and we can listen to him speak to people and we can speak to their ir so we always get to speak to management um if you're speaking to the CEO, it's because the company is quite small and they haven't got a professional IR team yet. If the company's bigger and you, you don't get to speak to IR, I mean, you don't get to speak to the CEO, you get to speak to the IR, that's not necessarily a bad thing because if the company's bigger, they're going to have a professional IR division and the IR person probably works in, in corporate strategy as well and is quite close to the CEO. So you, you can always get good access. One point, um, two, two quick points I think that, that are really interesting for us is since COVID's happened, all of the conferences have gone online to Zoom. So that's not just meeting management, it's also to hearing industry participants speak and listening to industry researchers, etc. You know, that's all gone online. So the amount of meetings um, Simon and I have done with companies, analysts, forecasters, experts, etc., industry experts, since the COVID lockdowns has gone up almost tenfold because everything's on Zoom. So we don't have to, we did travel to the States and Europe and Japan and go and see people and talk to people, whereas now we can do it all, all evening from home. So that, that's been one thing that's great. And the other it's thing- It's going to continue as well? Is this going to, yeah. part of that going to stick? I yeah, I say. think that's the new normal. And, and then the other thing that's really important for us um, is that we, we're part owned by New York Life, 
the rest is us owned by our staff at Oswell Investment Management. And New York Life Investment Management, um, New York Life's over 500 billion, as you mentioned, New York Life Investment Management's 200, well, 270 billion, I think just over that Aus, uh, Aust, um, US dollar, 270 billion under management is a massive investment house. And we're part of that. And they're, con they're a top 20 client of most of the major research houses and, and brokers globally. So we're a top 20 client of Citigroup. We're a top 20 client of, of Merrill Lynch, et cetera. So we, we get the access that most other firms globally don't get and most firms in Australia don't get. So we get to speak to the best analysts. We get to speak to their best industry contacts. When Simon went to Japan, he got to go and see the Bank of Japan. So we, we, we get the premium level corporate access. Um, from being part of the New York Life Investment Management Group, which is really beneficial for, for us and the unit trust holders. Yeah, we talk, talked about that last issue uh, last week where Waddle's preference is to kind of back boutique teams within a larger organisation. Uh, we were talking to Franklin Templeton, I think, and they operate very, very, very similar where we need, no, we actually invest in two of their funds, their bond fund and their equity team. And, we've got a relationship with all the portfolio managers and it feels like that they're a boutique operation, but essentially they've got the strength of Franklin Templeton behind them and similar to what, what you guys have is, um, and we, we feel a lot more comfortable on a governance, um, in a governance framework. And essentially we're investing um, every dollar of a client um, has, has earned or, or obtained through their whole life. So, so making sure that they are a part of a bigger picture is really important to us. So. Yeah, I think we'd struggle to find a firm that does a tighter audit than New York Life Investment Management. That's <laughs> one of the serious audits, I think, globally. But for a big mutual company, they don't miss anything. I think before, we usually head into stocks about now, but it might be worse... A trade desk will be the first one, uh, but small caps tend to be fast growing. So they can go from, as you said, you might invest in them at a billion and then they become five or 10 or 15 or 20 billion. Uh, do you have to sell them when they, when they get too big uh, or when do you sell them? Um, how do you sell it? How do you? Not, not immediately. No. When they, when they finally leave our index, um, we've got 12 months to sell them because like, like Toby said with one of his first questions, um, you don't want to sell winners too early. So we have the ability to, to let them run. And then we ultimately, after 12 months, we say a fond farewell. But in a way, that's a, that's a good thing because then we've got um, more more room in the portfolio to find the, the next emerging global titan. Yeah. yeah you've got to have that discipline to go and find the next emerging titan, emerging global titan. So when we bought the trade desk and Sounds similar time to you, Drew, before we, we, we knew each other, but um, we met each other. But there was four analysts, I think, covering TTD at that point, and they're all um, regional houses. And still, at the moment, the trade desk isn't covered by Goldman Sachs or, or any of the big guys. But the trade desk now does have, I think it's over 25 analysts covering the stock. You need to recycle that money away from stocks that have over 20 analysts covering them and back into stocks that only have one or two analysts covering them. Like Google's got, Alphabet's got over 60 analysts covering the stock. You can't find unrecognized growth with 60 experts covering it. Um, we had a stock last night in mode in healthcare. It does non-invasive 
aesthetic surgery equipment. So it owns its niche. It's the world leader in non-aesthetic, um, non-invasive aesthetic surgery, i.e. you can have um, face lifts without going under the knife, etc. Now, they've only got, they've got two analysts covering the stock. It, it, it is a reasonably big company. Um, and it beat earnings by over estimates by over 50% last night. And it's growing like crazy. And the market's massively underestimated its ability to grow. It's called in mode. It's in the portfolio. And I think after last night's move, it'll be almost a top 10 holding. Um, but there's an example that when you don't have many analysts covering a stock, the market can, can really misunderstand the amount of money you can make. The market is, markets are efficient in terms of pricing in what they can see in front of them, but they have no imagination. They can't price in what can be in three years' time. And you, you've found that with the trade desk as we have, but there's lots of stocks we've got where they're coming through and delivering those massive surprises to the market. So maybe we're usually yeah, onto stocks now. So what do the, I could probably explain it, but what does the trade desk do? Um, I, I'll do the trade desk side and then do you want to jump on the other ones? Yeah, sure. Um, so the trade desk um, facilitates people, their clients, to bid on, and digi bid on digital advertising. So whether it's a, a something in your web browser, on your phone, a video in an app or a video on connected television, that's inventory that, that people have. And obviously advertisers want to advertise their product and they bid on different inventory whether they want it on a, a slot on connected television whether they want a slot on your phone when you're reading the, the sydney morning herald or wherever they want to advertise it and everyone has to bid for that globally what's key is that because it's a bidding system with lots of people transacting um, it's about scale and knowledge and access so if you can access more inventory, you've got an information advantage. If you've got more scale, you're an information advantage. And if you're bidding more and you've had a longer history of bids, you've got a, a massive information advantage. So you can bid more accurately, more efficiently, and basically get a better return on your advertising dollars. So it's like a, a stock exchange for, for ads, is exactly, basically what they're running. Exactly. But they run on the Digital. They, they, Exactly. And they offer, if you use the, the, the trade desk says to people, look, we're the best access way that you guys can, can, can play that can, can get digital, digital advertising inventory. We're the exchange. We're the, they're a buy side demand platform, but yeah, their, their proposition is we're the best way. And also because we've developed anonymous identification, we can identify people for you to advertise to based on why you the people that you want to advertise a specific product but we've done it anonymously so it's like the ads that follow you go onto one side and then the ads follow you everywhere for the rest of <laughs> the rest of your life yes, you know, book but your trip to fiji but they don't know that drew's been looking at they don't know it's drew who's been looking at holidays to fiji they just know you have and you can't stop a th over 35 year old um <laughs> in melbourne half year old yeah. <laughs> and so it's, it's, it's the, the proposition is they're just the best out there globally for anyone who wants to advertise on digital. And they uh, don't, so they're not competing with Google and Facebook. They're actually using Google and Facebook's platforms, which is an important, yes. um, yeah. important yeah. thing there too. Um, it, 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 yeah, it's reductionist and simple to say it's them versus Facebook. That's not true at all. The, the universe, yeah. the, the internet's a huge, huge beast, especially with connected TV and et cetera. Um, and they just offer the best way for people to do it and be able to see what they're doing. So the, with 
the way Google and Facebook with their walled gardens and third party cookies and a lot of information we don't have time to go into now, they're sort of turning the lights off for advertisers to see what their advertising dollars are getting them. The trade desk is turning the lights on and saying that this is the, showing them where the most efficient way to bid on advertising is and showing them what their return is. And that's why people are flocking to their platform. Yeah. Did you have a stock, Jamie? I've got Solar Edge. Um, it was a part of Nook as well. Uh, I think you still do you hold it, Simon. We do. Yeah, Solar Edge is uh, is a great company. We'd we'd actually been looking at it towards the uh, towards the end of last year and early this year. We were just waiting for an opportunity to buy it, and we uh, it actually um, got punished quite heavily during COVID, and we we bought it and entered the portfolio on the on the nineteenth of March, and it's obviously been a very strong strong performer since then. But Soda Edge was, was basically created by five friends um, in Israel about 15 years ago. And what Soda Edge does is it makes solar panel inverters and optimizers. So a solar panel optimizer basically um, balances the load between your, solar, your various solar panels. So solar panels used to be fairly, fairly inefficient because they could only generate electricity at, at, at one level and it was the, the lowest level generating panel that dictated um, the output for the whole the whole array whereas solar edges optimizers allow that to be balanced and massively increase the efficiency of a, of a solar panel array their inverters take the electricity the uh, the direct current that's generated by the solar panels and uh, switches that into an alternating current so it can be used in the, in the house it can be sold back to the the grid can be used to power the um, the wall battery in your garage and um, and they've just they've just been able to continually improve the the quality and the and the value of their their products over time so at the moment they offer the smallest and lightest inverters and optimizers in the market they give you a 12 year warranty and um, they're very much focused on on cost like i said they're um, they're looking and um, they're expanding into wall batteries now and um, and what we see is a, is a company that founders are still involved the um, the head of research and development is one of the founders they're very passionate their esg is very good when you when you look at the um, the review websites like Glassdoor and see what their employees are saying about them, the employees' reviews are incredibly, incredibly positive. When you look at customer re reviews, they're very positive. They're obviously um, one of their big markets is the U.S., but they're expanding into the uh, emerging markets as well. And also, I think there's a there's a strong structural theme that more and more of the power we consume is going to be. Um, generated by renewables and solar. So um, for us, we think there's a, a really strong runway of unrecognized growth for Solar Edge going forward. So they've picked a part of the supply chain. I think it's kind of well known, isn't it, that such solar panels, something like 99% are, are made in China and they almost control the market and no one can make money out of the actual solar panels. So they pick a part of the supply chain that that everyone needs, probably even more so. 100%. It hasn't been commoditized yet. Correct, and what they they just are adding 
services upon that. So their um, their digital interface, you can see on your phone or your PC how each specific solar panel is performing in your array. You can you can manage the output. You can manage how much you sell to the grid, how much you put in the battery, how much you use to power your house. So it's all these um, additional services um, that they're adding. Just just completes the the product offering and and makes them more more ingrained with their with their customers they call it the double winner don't they where the <clears throat> the market is going up so there's more solar installations going on roofs and they're growing market share within the market that's actually growing, yeah. growing as well 100 so i think it's really um a, a lovely way to describe and solar edge but also any of our investments side so and drew jamie you guys know this because we, we've spoken about it but just in terms of trying to bring the product alive to your clients so that when they speak to us, they can understand what we really want to do for people is we want to invest in what we call emerging global titans. We have a portfolio full of them and we've got more on the buy list. And what we mean by that is uh, we use the analogy of CSL. The CSL is a stock that everyone wanted to hold in their portfolio. Why? Because it's been fantastic at consistently generating returns above people's expectations and profit growth. But why did it do that? Well, it was a niche leader in, in blood plasma. It's grown geographically throughout time. It's grown into adjacent products and services, so different types of blood plasma. It's improved its cost structure in terms of how it gets hold of the blood plasma and process it and distribute it. And it's improved its management team in ESG and it's used its capital structure to create value for shareholders too and return capital when it needs to. Those are the five key areas that we look for and that's what we, we invest in. We've got a portfolio of these emerging global titans that are improving cost structure, growing geographically in new products and services, improving their pricing, improving management and using their capital structure as well. But niche leaders, absolute niche leaders, but in different industries and in different countries all around the world to generate a, a diversified portfolio. But Simon just described it really that well there with, with, with SolarEdge and hopefully we, we didn't really go into detail with the trade desk, but it is. Every single one of our businesses is creating value in those five key value creating areas. Um, and that's how we generate much higher earnings uh, than, than the benchmark. We talk about being unrecognized growth. And right now we've got double the amount of earnings upgrades as the benchmark. We're getting twice the number of positive earnings revisions as the asset class. And it's because we're investing in those, in, in those emerging global titans, the next CSLs that we can find, but in different subsectors globally. So you enter a company and that company might be just regional and then, then it goes, um, then it expands its product. So say Solar Edge, if they originally started in Israel, would you invest in them as they expand globally? Is that the real uptick in something like that? So you're, maybe I'm not articulating my question properly, but you know, essentially you're a global small cap fund you're looking for these uh, global leaders so will you will you buy a company that is just isolated to say north america with the view that they can expand it at a later date or do they have to have some kind of global footprint before you um invest into them it it, it depends on so, so what doesn't depend what's absolutely consistent is they have to be creating value through expanding geographically 
Now that might mean expanding from the southwest of the US towards the north and, and over to the east, or it might mean expanding from sort of Benelux and Germany in, into France and Italy and Spain and the UK. But what is consistent, they have to be expanding. Given that we're investing in small companies, depending on what type of business that they do, they might be expanding regionally or they might be expanding globally. It's very easy for a software company to expand globally. It's very hard for a trucking business or a, a, a real estate investment specialist trust to expand globally. So it just depends on what they do. Um, yep. Most businesses operate globally and are expanding globally. Although we have a few that are just expanding in, say, Europe or expanding into the States. But we do fully expect them to, to grow even more. So we own a, a supermarket in Sweden. It's a supermarket chain called Axfood. Fantastic business, really well run. They own the budget discounter label brand. They own the mid and they own the premium um, grocery chains in the US and because they they have control of distribution and their distribution centers they've got such a fantastic scale advantage over everyone else now they're not growing in the US because they're a Swedish supermarket but they are expanding into Norway etc so and they are expanding in Sweden so it just depends on what type of business they do what's consistent is that we're expecting a lot of unrecognized growth from geographic expansion hmm. got it I kind of had the, sorry, do you want to go, Jamie? No, I was just saying, I think we've got time for one more stock, if you want to ask um, Drew. Yeah, I was going to go, we've got, um, or if you don't have a favourite, is there a favourite you'd like to discuss, apart from the one we keep discussing? We're, we're, we're not in love with any of them. We got <laughs> Like children, no, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and animals. And... Got the buy list as well, so no, we're not, we're not in love with any of them. Well, I think semiconductors are incredibly ex exciting and popular. Everyone talks about NVIDIA, um, you know, Intel, all these other companies that are up, you know, the valuations up 100% or something this year. But you've got a couple in, in the uh, supply chain. Is it um, Siltronic, which makes wafers, not, not biscuits, um, but <laughs> <laughs> wafers or Cirrus, is it Cirrus Logic, um, which is in the semiconductor? Yeah. We've we got some others, but just on uh, as well, um, just on those. So Siltronic, there's about three players globally um, that make um, serious amounts of silicon wafers for people. Obviously, wafer demand by volumes going up consistently in the future because we're just going to need more semis. But they make the actual silicon. They grow the silicon crystals and then cut them up. Um, for people, now it, it's go into the semiconductor. This is like uh, engineering yeah. 101. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the but wafers go into the semiconductors that power all the computers that we use everywhere. Exactly, silicon metal it is. It needs to be sort of grown and stretched to create a crystal. You're sort of growing a crystal, and then you slice that up and sell it to people. But it's, it's quite a difficult thing to do. There's not many players globally. Still trying for one of the best. And what we like about them is the market is not giving them credit for their market share gains or their cost efficiencies. Obviously, mm. they're already selling globally and they, they're expanding more geographically, but the market's not giving them credit for their efficiencies. And then um, Cirrus Logic um, make haptic devices, which I'll explain because when I heard that word, I thought it was to do with ducks or something. But um, <laughs> And they make um, microphones. But... Um, they're exposed to smartphones and tablets, Cirrus Logic, and earpods. Um, they make um, a haptic device is on your phone. You know when you touch your phone, it's got a different sort of vibration depending on what you're touching on your phone. 
when we had the old Nokias, it had one <laughs> vibration. Yep. Snake. <laughs> it had one type of vibration and then I think they had two or three types of vibration your modern phone has I don't know something like 30 or 40 different types of vibration haptic basically means when you touch something um, and so they make the semiconductors uh, for microphones and, and, for, and for listening but also more importantly for uh, when you touch the iPhone or the Android in different ways. And they also do voice security. So in the future, it might not just be your phone looking at you or you touching a fingerprint. It'll be able to analyze your voice because apparently voice is a thousand times harder um, or a thousand times more different than fingerprints, which we always thought was differentiated enough, but um, voice is more. So there's some interesting names there. I think, I think the key point for us is if you get, you've got good opportunities to have niche leaders where they own their niche, so Apple and Samsung have to go to them. Um, and they've got ability to, they're much better at doing what they do than their peers. And they've got a huge opportunity to grow. Um, and, and they're good at running their business in terms of allocating growth capital and, and cost efficiency. So those things always hopefully pick up a very consistent across what we, what we invest in. And yeah, you're able to pick up the same themes that <clears throat> the Googles and Facebooks and the Microsofts are doing, but you're doing them in probably a more diversified way. And if you look at the markets, they're better valuations or unrecognized valuations, potentially. Yeah. Way better valuations, particularly on a two-year view. Yeah. Um, and, and also under-researched. I think Skilltronic's got four analysts covering it. Yeah. So I had... Much easier to beat the market. I had one last question, which was, I'm writing it daily at the moment, and every every day there seems to be more M and A happening. Is take takeovers? Is that is there a lot happening in small caps or mainly in large caps at the moment? No, there's a lot happening. Uh, one of our investments is someone's trying to take it over at the moment. Um, there, it, there's a lot going on. Um, I think um, it's not something you invest for, but it, no. if it if it happens, it's a benefit. Yeah, I mean, ideally, your best companies will never get taken out because whoever might be wanting to acquire them can see that the management team currently in place can create more value than other people. Um, having said that, we do own some names in the portfolio where they're niche leaders in M&A and they will benefit from the increased amounts of M&A going on in the market. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to see a, a pickup in M&A, I think, with all, the, with all the liquidity that's flowing around the world at the moment, for sure. Yeah, we're kind of seeing it's a... It's a small business uh, not small cap but a small business recession almost where anyone that has cash is able to build market share and buy smaller companies yeah i think now it's really a, no new pointer at the moment that is a great opportunity for niche leaders over the next few years if you're well if you've got a, a good balance sheet with access to capital from banks or you've got capital there and you you're the best at doing what you do over the next few years, there's going to be great opportunity to pick up competitors and, and integrate them. Um, yeah. and, and, and I think that you, what you'll see is that the winners will come out of this a lot stronger. Mm. All right. Um, we might leave it there. But uh, first, uh, from Drew and I and all our listeners, thanks, Simon and Toby. It's been a great uh, one-hour session. Um, so thanks to both of you two. There's a, there's a pause you, there somewhere. We really appreciate your support. Thank yeah, you very thanks much. Thanks for having us on.
No, no problem. And uh, obviously, a really important part of our portfolio, especially generating returns for clients over the next 10 years, as interest rates are pretty close to zero. Um, and, you know, a, a zero interest rate means that global growth should be hard. That's my dog. Should be hard to um, <laughs> should be hard to obtain. So we're looking at ways that we can sustainably provide growth to our clients, um, and this is this is one. So thanks, guys. You've been really um, uh, really good on the session. Uh, I think uh, the, the the listeners have learned a lot about your fund. Um, hopefully, we can get you back in six months' time and talk about the positions. So that'd be great. We've got a few questions we might share with you afterwards if you if you want to provide some comments on them. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Absolutely. Anytime, anything, Drew. Yeah. Thanks, thanks. Yeah. thanks guys. Uh, next week, we will be joined by Nick Griffin from Munro Funds Management talking about tech. So please join us 10.30 next Wednesday. Thanks, Simon. Thanks, Toby. Thanks, Drew. Thanks, Drew. Thanks, thanks, Jamie. Thanks.